Hello, and welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and I'm at RWA in Atlanta, where it's actually a little cooler than it is in New Jersey, which is weird, but I'm enjoying it. Also, my hair is enormous because humidity. Woo! I am here for the Romance Writers of America conference, and I have some interviews scheduled, but before I get to the interviews, I wanted to answer three emails or well, more like answer two and then read one because the one is awesome and it has a recommendation. And who doesn't like book recommendations, right? Before I get started, I have two pieces of information. First, the music was provided by Sassy Atwater, as usual, correct? And I will have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is and how awesome it is and where you can find it. And Penguin would also like me to tell you about the following because Penguin sponsors the podcast and we love them. Even though they didn't call themselves Random Penguin after the merger, I'm working on forgiving them. Berkeley Books, our podcast sponsor, would like you to know about Hot Summer Nights, a brand new romance collection by four best-selling authors, Carly Phillips, J.C. Burton, Aaron McCarthy, and Jessica Clare. I will have more information about the anthology after the podcast and in the podcast entry on our websites. And now, on with the email. Our first email comes from Kelly, and Kelly emails me and says, Dear Sarah and Jane, thank you for the podcasts. They are awesome. Dear Kelly, you're welcome. I'm writing because I wanted to know whether or not I should try to attend RWA or RT. Both are conferences that I've heard a lot about, but I'm not sure which one I would want to attend and what I would get out of them. And I know you've been to both, so could you talk a little bit about them? Dear Kelly, that is a really good question, particularly because I'm currently at RWA. If you are an aspiring or current romance author and you wish to learn more about the market, the craft, and the actual industry of publishing, and you wish to be a professional romance writer, the Romance Writers of America annual conference is ideal for you. It is not a conference for just readers. It is not a reader fan convention. Now, the weird overlap there is that most writers of romance are also readers of romance, and so you'll see authors and aspiring authors attending the various book signings that publishers hold. And it can be a little weird to think, okay, well, the RWA is a professional conference. How come all these publishers are having book signings? That's part of RWA, but the bulk of the conference itself is not for readers to come and learn about the genre. It is for writers to come and learn about how to write it. So it is a professional industry conference for writers of romance and aspiring writers of romance. Most of the sessions are about the craft of writing and the industry of writing, And you'll also see a lot of people holding meetings. This is an opportunity for editors and agents to meet with people face-to-face and have dinners with authors. There's a lot of schmoozing, basically, that goes on. And the bar is a pretty happening place. What's interesting about RWA and also RT is that as more and more people spend time online talking to each other all day, RWA or RT become the events where you actually meet all these people face to face. And there have been a couple conversations I've had at both conferences where I've been talking to someone and then realized their Twitter handle or realized their name on Facebook and understood that I've been talking to them for months and months and months. And you kind of skip the small talk because you're with your tribe and it's awesome. But RWA is for professional or aspiring professional romance writers. It is an industry conference. Romantic Time Book Lovers Convention is a fan convention. It is a convention that is meant to bring romance readers and romance authors together for parties and mayhem. It is a very different focus. The RT conference or convention 
is meant to bring readers together so they can meet each other, so they can meet authors, so they can learn about different genres. And it is a fan convention. That's why you see more dressing up, you see more costumes, you see more um, sort of outward expressions of your fandom. The fandom is not really part of RWA. Fandom is not really an element of RWA. Fandom is a big old element of RT, and that kind of makes it awesome. So short, short answer, corsets, more likely to be found at RT. Contracts, more likely to be found at RWA. Not the actual contract itself, but the discussion thereof. So if you're a reader of romance, and you're thinking, I would really love to meet all my favorite authors and meet other readers and take home about 89 kilograms of books, then go to RT. Because there's book signings, and there's book events, and there's opportunities to meet authors, and all of the same types of signings that are held at RWA are also held at RT. The authors may not be the same. Some authors only go to one and don't go to the other, or some only attend one conference a year, which is totally fine. But if you are a fan, and you want books, and you want to meet authors, and you want to discover new people, and you want to meet new people, and you want to talk to romance readers in person, because who doesn't want to talk to romance readers in person? We're awesome. You want to go to RT. I hope that answers your question. If you have more questions about it, you're welcome to email me. And if you have ideas about the difference between RWA and RT and which one you prefer as an author or as a writer, you can email me at svjpodcast at gmail.com. This next email is from Susan. Susan says, I have a nerd recommendation that is not strictly a romance, more of a farce. The book is called Chemistry for Beginners by Anthony Strong. It makes fun of scientists, nerds, academics, academia, sex researchers, and a few others that I cannot remember. The hero and heroine are most definitely nerds. I thought this book was very funny, and I got it from the library. This is the description in case you're curious. In this charming boy-meets-girl-in-a-sex-study love story, a clueless scientist falls for his most incurable patient and learns that romance is far more than a simple solution to a chemical equation. Dr. Stephen J. Fisher is fascinated by the elusive nature of the female orgasm, passionately proclaiming it, quote, the last great unexplored territory, unquote. I wonder how Canada feels about that. But for all of his scientific candor about human sexuality in the lab, Dr. Fisher is really just a shy chemist who is a beginner in the ways of love. Troc, a major pharmaceutical company, has sponsored his Oxford research team to develop the first pill to cure female sexual dysfunction, and Dr. Fisher is just weeks away from launching his miracle cure at their upcoming conference, when a beautiful and brilliant and orgasmically challenged PhD student named Annie begins participating in his study, everything Dr. Fisher thinks he knows about women is turned on its head, and his research becomes more and more complicated with the addition of her perplexing data. Is it the pill making her feel this way, or is it love? What scientific phenomenon can explain the changes in his own feelings? With pressure mounting from the truck, the truck, <laughs> that sounds like a monster, sorry, <laughs> when, when <laughs> With pressure mounting from the truck, Annie's mystery must be solved by any means possible. Cleverly presented through excerpts from Stephen's clinical studies and Annie's blog entries, Chemistry for Beginners gets to the heart of what makes us all tick, showing that love is, in fact, all about chemistry. This book was produced by Touchstone, which I believe is a division of, yeah, Simon & Schuster, Touchstone and Fireside, and... The Kindle edition is about $13, and the paperback is about $20, so I think this is probably a library book, but I kind of want to read that. Like, whoa. So thank you very much, Susan, for the recommendation, and yes, I do understand why you got that from the library. Holy!
Our next email comes from Lisa. Dear Sarah and Jane, first, I love the podcasts. I just started listening to them a month or so ago. I know, welcome to 2005. <laughs> and glommed most of your prior podcasts and now anxiously await the new ones. I thoroughly enjoy listening to you both debate the merits of a book and why it did or did not work for you. Thank you, Lisa. Sadly, Jane and I never agree on books. It's a hardly ever happens thing when we both like a book. And then even if we do like it, we like it for completely opposite reasons. So we could probably debate books for many, many hours. We should probably start recording those debates, huh? Second, says Lisa, I finally broke down and upgraded my iPod Nano for a classic with 160 gigabytes of memory so I can now download all the things. Oh, that's awesome. I'd like to try some audiobooks now that I have the room. And Sarah's recent post about listening to Austin Land made me think that I should ask you and the bitchery for recommendations for romance books that are not only well-written, but also well-read. I love romances with good dialogue, like Eloisa James, Nora Roberts, and Loretta Chase, and to hear someone read them would enhance the experience, I hope. Any suggestions? An avid reader and listener, Lisa. Oh, Lisa, there are so many excellent, excellent audiobooks to choose from. The first that I would recommend for you are unfortunately abridged, and oddly enough, I was just talking about this on Twitter a little while ago. Richard Armitage narrated abridged versions of three Georgette Heyer novels. One is Venetia, another is Convenient Marriage, and the third is Sylvester. And they are the most gourmet audiobooks for your ears Ever. Because not only does he have a wonderful voice just, you know, talking, like imagining him ordering a pizza, so not a bad thing. But when he starts doing the voices, he is so good at dowagers and angry old ladies and foppish idiots. And oh, he's just wonderful. So start with the Venetia or Sylvester recordings of Georgette Hare, read by Richard Armitage. Your ears will thank you. <sighs> They're so good. But there are more and more excellent books being brought into audio format. For example, I know Laura Kinsale has been working very hard to bring many of her titles into audio, and the person that she has narrating them, I've read a few reviews of them online, and the narrator is supposed to be astonishingly good. I know Midsummer Moon is out, and I know a couple other of her titles are out as well in audio, and I will link to those in the entry for this podcast. There should be at least three or four of those. Those can be emotionally intense, so if you're familiar with Kinsale's work, you know what to expect. Angela James also tells me that she loves to listen to Nalini Singh's Psy Changeling series in audio. Not only does she read them in print or digitally, but she also listens to them and says that when you listen to them, you hear different things about the books and you hear different parts of the story that come forward in the audio that aren't so obvious in the in the writing. So it's a different way to consume the book. Even if you've already read it, it's good to listen to. And it's really, really well done in the narration. They are narrated by someone named Angela Daw, and they're supposed to be astonishing. So I'll link to those as well. Another series that I've heard is excellent on audiobook that I want to try is the Elder Races series by Thea Harrison that starts with Dragonbound. Those are also available in audio, and the narrator is supposed to be excellently talented. Like I said, I haven't listened quite yet. Another author with great dialogue that you might like and who is also available in audio is Jennifer Cruzy. Now, she writes contemporaries, but Welcome to Temptation and Bet Me are both available in audio format, and that's a lot of very good dialogue. Finally, if you seem to like historicals, judging from what you've said of your, of your favorite authors, 
Julie Garwood is also available in audio, and she might really work for you, as is the Wallflowers Quartet by Lisa Kleypas. Those are both series that are A, crack, and B, good with the dialogue and have interesting characters. If the narrator can do a good job of distinguishing between the different characters, then those should be wonderful to listen to. You should definitely also check out the audio samples of books that you've already read, because it can be really interesting, like I said earlier, to listen to the audio of a book that you've already read, because it tends to sound and seem a little different when you listen to it versus when you read it. I know when I read, I actually hear a, a voice reading me the book in my brain. I'm actually reading myself the book aloud in my mind, which sounds very strange, but that's what happens when I'm reading. So when I listen to someone else's narration versus my own narration, my experience with the book becomes completely different. I see different things in the text than I did when I was reading it, and I notice different things about the characters that I didn't notice when I read it. So definitely think about going back to listen to books you've already read, and if that doesn't bore you, it could be a really interesting experience. And also, that's a lot of gigabytes on an iPod. I hope you have a really good time with that. This last message comes from Nan. Nan writes, Dear Sarah and Jane, I was reading Julie James's latest book, Love Irresistibly, and there were a couple of sex scenes in which the hero pulls a condom out of his wallet. Now, I remember from sex education in 6th and again in 10th grade, where the teacher told us that condoms in the wallet was a big no-no, something about the heat and the folding of the wallet destroying or breaking the condom. Recently, I have encountered a lot of books in which the hero keeps condoms in his wallet. And it keeps bringing me back to those sex education lessons. I'm wondering if now that we have established where the hymen is, it is time to establish where it is safe to keep your condoms. P.S. There's a scene near the end of Love Irresistibly where Cade makes a statement about pulling out too late, referring to his relationship with Brooke, and his friend misunderstands and thought that Cade meant Brooke was pregnant. And while reading that scene, I kept thinking, well, that's possible. From Nan. Okay, yes, that is actually true. It is not a good idea to keep a condom in your wallet. There is a tremendous sex-positive website called Go Ask Alice, which is run by Columbia Health and originally published in 2007, updated and reviewed on in September of 2012. Dear Alice, I've heard that it is unsafe to keep condoms in your wallet. Is that true? Yes, a condom stored in a wallet can be deteriorated by action, even when the person carrying it isn't getting any. The constant bending of a wallet caused by sitting and walking, as well as the friction from frequently opening and closing the wallet, can cause a condom stored inside to deteriorate. Even if it looks fine when you open it, there may be microscopic holes and tears that make it less effective in preventing pregnancy and transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. Extreme heat or freezing cold can also make a condom brittle and weak. Even if the condom is brought back to room temperature before it's used, you should always store condoms in a cool, dark, dry place. And it's better to keep them in your nightstand than your back pocket. However, if you do want to have condoms available while you're on the go, you might consider purchasing a small hard case like a business card holder to carry around in your bag to protect your protection from hazards like heat and punctures. Additionally, if you are a student at Columbia University, you can always find free condoms stored properly at the medical services and the Go Ask Alex office. And this is true. Many universities have areas where you can get free condoms. So yes, Nan, you are correct. It is not okay to store a condom in a wallet. It is like asking for it to be broken or less reliable. And if you're going to go ahead and practice safe sex, you should practice safe sex with things that are reliable, I should think. But what does this mean in a literary context? 
When you have a character who carries a condom, it comes with the presumption that at some point they're going to use that condom. And if you have characters that don't acknowledge using a condom or don't use one at all, readers often find that equally distracting. Like, why are you having unsafe sex? What's wrong with you? You people just met. So from the authorial perspective, I can understand why you don't want to necessarily have someone just shoving a condom in their pants pocket, like, hey, I grab my keys, I grab my condom, because that's how I roll. But you also are correct that keeping it in a wallet where it's a, hey, just in case I might get lucky, woo, it's convenient, that isn't necessarily safe or even good. So what can authors do to store a condom accurately and have it available by chance without the overlying intention of, I knew all along we were going to get down? This is, by the way, the subject of my major disagreement with many people's adoration of Kill and Tell by Linda Howard. Many people, including Jane and Angie James, adore this book because Mark Chastain is the most heroist of heroes and he is just so hot. I completely disagree with that and I will tell you why. In Kill and Tell, there is a scene where the hero has the heroine over for dinner and he has one of those awesome old style uh, New Orleans homes with a big balcony on the second level. And at one point, he goes in to turn on the music and comes out and dances with her. And there's like a bunch of stuff that happens. It's like an hour's worth of stuff since he turns on the music. There's dinner and there's dancing. And so finally they're dancing and she unzips his pants and he has already put on the condom and somehow sustained a boner for like over an hour during like dinner and drinks and dancing. And it's supposed to be this hot thing. And I am like, ew, that is disgustingly presumptuous. And I don't like it because to me, as the reader, A, I was not on board with the hero and the heroine and the insta-love anyway. But to me, that was a message that he expected that he would get laid, and he was just waiting for the heroine to arrive at that same conclusion. Hence, he can sport a boner and a condom in his pants for like an hour. And I don't know any dude that can do that, because condom plus pants seems very uncomfortable. Not that I have the equipment to test this out. So when you are an author and you're trying to write a scene where the hero or heroine is responsible and aware of sexual responsibility and has a condom, they have to balance that with making it seem as if the hero or heroine is not just presuming, of course I'm going to get laid because I'm that awesome, because that reader may be like me and find that presumption on the part of the character really off-putting. So where can authors put condoms so that they are conveniently at hand and yet not in the wallet where they be breaking? That's a really good question, and I'm not really sure I have an answer. I really like the suggestion of carrying a business card case or a small hard case in your purse, but that means that you know, during the, the great undressing scene and the, and the shirt and the bra and the pants and everyone's clothes are coming off, someone's got to stop and dig through their purse. And if their purse is anything like mine, it's going to kill the moment because it'll take like 25 minutes to find something at the bottom of a purse. It is a really big challenge to figure out where to put a condom so that it is not presumptuous, but that it is conveniently ready if they're not in a bedroom near a bedstand. And one of the things about romance novels is the fact that, if you notice, they don't have sex in bedrooms half the time. Half the time they're in some other room or some other place, or they're so blown away by the passionate loiny pants that they have to go up against a wall. So there's not always the bedstand, and it's not like characters can keep condoms in every available drawer of every available credenza. This is a real question. So I am curious what you think. Where should the condoms be 
in a romance? Should they be in the wallet? Well, just pretend that the heroes don't have actually warm butts and their condoms are always pristine and not damaged at all by heat and friction? Or should there be another option to realistically but romantically portray condom use? I am really curious about this and I would love to hear your answers. You can leave a comment. You can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. You can do any number of awesome things. Just let us know. We are curious. And thank you, Nan, for a really awesome letter. I am going to be pondering this for hours now. Hours and hours and hours of pondering condoms and wallets, which I haven't really had to think about in a long time. And that's all for this week's podcast. It's a short one because I've got interviews coming up. Future podcasts will contain me interviewing people while I'm here at RWA, and Jane and I will be responding to reader letters in future podcasts. The music you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater, as usual. This is Room 215, and this is performed by the Peat Bog Fairies, because Peat Bog Fairies make every day better. If you'd like information about them, you can find out about their website or where to purchase this song at Smart Bitches Trashy Books or Dear Author when this episode is posted. And finally, this podcast was brought to you by Berkeley Books, publisher of Hot Summer Nights, a new exciting summer romance story collection available now. If the season is not quite warm enough for you yet, you can check out Berkeley's new release, Hot Summer Nights, for best-selling masters of contemporary romance. Carly Phillips, J.C. Burton, Aaron McCarthy, and Jessica Clare have teamed up, and the result is on fire. Their stories of lust and love are a can't-miss collection essential for your bedside table. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold. I'll have information about that book as well as the books I talked about in the podcast in the podcast entry when this goes up. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, Jane and I and Berkeley wish you the very best of readings.